This is the Constructionist Podcast, where we take ancient stories, the person of Jesus, current events and topics, and help you construct a new Christian worldview that's relevant and loving to those around you. I'm your host, Kevin Bates. I'm a semiotician and community builder looking at the signs of the times to build a better future together. Welcome to the Constructionist Podcast, and in tonight's episode, we will be discussing the life of Christ. So as hosts of this podcast, we strive to provide you with a relevant and compassionate worldview framework that will help guide you through life. And we believe that in order to achieve this, it is very important to get our house in order. So this is why we are learning to love and care for ourselves as we love and, and care for others fully. So we encourage a worldview that is built on the principles of Christ, which is love, compassion, patience, humility, and gentleness. And in this episode, we will examine the life of Christ with a clear and honest lens. And that's through a historical perspective and also through a semiotic perspective, which we will cover tonight. So by doing so, we hope to offer insights and perspectives that maybe you've never heard before as you journey through with us with a greater understanding of love and compassion for yourself and others. So we want to uh, assure you that tonight's episode, like we mentioned last week, we're not going to fabricate anything like many have done in the past. Any information, ideas that we have, any commentary that we read, anything that we offer as new ideas, new thoughts, those are not fabricated. They're well thought through, well delineated, distilled down, looking at an honest and authentic perspective in our examination of the book of Mark. That's where we're going to be, hopefully, in chapter two and three tonight by the end. So in previous episodes, we've um, discussed the potential pitfalls of deconstructing old ideas. And when we deconstruct old ideas, many times we don't have new understanding or new ideas to move us forward. So we get stuck in a cycle, a cycle of, well, perpetuating patterns that we sought to change before. So instead, we need a fresh perspective, something to pull us forward, a framework that's constructive, a framework that's healthy um, with habits and behaviors that are a new a new view. So that's why the Constructions podcast is a space for thinking. This is our thinking space, uh, exploring new ideas, uh, new possibilities, presenting practical thoughts, we hope, and theology for daily life. So we aim to provide a platform for honest and authentic discussions, relevant topics, so that our listeners can find new ways to live purposeful and meaningful lives. So in tonight's episode, we're excited to share our best attempt at exploring practical ways to apply ideas and theology to our life. So as we look through the life of Christ and we look through the book of Mark to be the platform and the framework for that discussion, we hope that you find this interesting and meaningful and something special that you can apply to your daily living. So if you enjoy the Constructionist podcast, we want to uh, encourage you to financially support us. So please follow the link in our chat or the show notes on our social media platform that you're listening on and visit our give page, resonatelife.org. So your support will enable us to continue to produce high quality content like this. But more importantly than financial, more importantly than 
than giving money. We want to hear from you and engage with you. That's most important to us. And we believe that through our interactions, through our discussion, through our communal hermeneutic, that we call it listening to you and learning together and growing together, we value your feedback, your questions, your ideas. So we want to interact with you. We want to have a discussion. We're excited to build a community around a shared exploration of new perspective. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Let us know what you think. Interact with us on your social media channel. Ask questions and through the week. If you're not able to join us live tonight, you can join us through the week at any moment. You can jump on and ask a question and we will return some feedback on your questions. So with that, we are thankful for you to be here. Jake and Shreya, uh, welcome. And we're excited to, that both of you are joining us. Uh, Shreya and Jake and myself, I guess we can call ourselves experts in this. Um, we talk about a lot of uh, subject matter that really, um, you know, is just an exploration of thoughts and ideas that sometimes are are um, just our best attempt, and we never claim to be experts in certain things. But Sharia has her master's in theology. Jake has his master's in theology. I have my doctorate in semiotics, and so we would probably consider ourselves at this point pretty learned folk in this type of study in this realm and so we come to you with an honest level of discussion that comes with a little bit of experience so sheree and jake welcome how are you guys and gals you're good thanks hey doing okay awesome well we're going to jump into it and we're not going to waste any time because last week we only made it through probably 30 verses of chapter one. So we need to uh, make some ground. So we're going to start in Mark chapter one, verse 32. That's where we're going to be. And so it's going to be up on the screen. We're going to read it. It comes out of the contemporary English Bible. And so with that, Let's get started. Let's do this. So that evening at sunset, people brought to Jesus those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered near the door. He healed many who were sick with all kinds of diseases, and he threw out many demons. But he didn't let the demons speak because they recognized him. Early in the morning, well before sunrise, Jesus rose and went to a deserted place where he could be alone in prayer. Simon and those with him tracked him down. When they found him, they told him, everyone's looking for you. He replied, let's head into the other direction to nearby villages so that I can preach there too. That's why I've come. He traveled through Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and throwing out demons. So let's stop there for a moment. Let's just talk about demon possession. Let's talk about what that means uh, in the life of Christ historically. Uh, Shreya, why don't you start us out? What does demon possession mean when we read that in Scripture? Um, I am not an expert in this area, but I believe that um, that was one way of characterizing mental illness. Um, so because people in Jesus day did not have the same understanding of psychology that we do now, um, 
someone with mental health issues could be considered to be demon possessed. Yeah, Jake, do you have any other thoughts on that? Because that's that's kind of an important that's kind of an important theme that kind of carries out through scripture, this idea of demon possession. So in <clears throat> so we gotta look at the time period and Jesus especially, uh perhaps Mark is writing in, in a time called Second Temple Judaism. And mm. First temple was Solomon's temple was destroyed in 586 uh, with the, I can't remember who that was, but they destroyed it. And then um, Ezra rebuilt the temple sometime later. And so it was never the glory or the glamour of, of Solomon's, but a lot of theology came out of second temple Judaism. And a lot of it is angel worship, uh, Messiah worship and demon worship. And so also synagogue, the synagogue system came out of that, didn't it? That's when synagogues mm -hmm. kind of developed. Yeah. I think, I think especially when the temple was destroyed, synagogues came, came out. And, um, mm -hmm. if you go back to the podcast that, uh, not podcast, but the presentation of the woman at the well from last week, it mm -hmm. talks about Shiloh and how, uh, the Samaritans worshiped in different heights, same God, but different heights. And so, right. so there was a lot of different, different worships going on at the same exact time period. Um, something to note is that the Jews were never monotheists. They just only worshiped God. And so, and so demonology or like what we're seeing here is, is more of how they experienced, expressed religion, worship, relationship with God, it was very real and present to them, whether that was mental illness or whether that was actual like demon possession, we don't know. But at the time of writing, this would be a very common thought. Common thought as Shreya said, it would be a, a mental uh, ailment of some kind or possibly a physical ailment too because they believed in the sins of those before us, generational sin, mm -hmm. that that was expressed in physical ailments. So whether it be a, uh, that as we read on, we'll see that he healed many people of many illnesses and casted out demons. So there's kind of a twofold type of thing that's going on. And if we read historically, we have this, as you were saying, Jake, we have this expression of demonology that emerges um, kind of late. And I would say that probably right before the first century, we begin to see that emergence of yeah. synagogue. And some people would even say in the first century that that's when we saw the first synagogues in the town that like Jesus would be in or these towns yeah. that Jesus would be in, that that's where this new community of structure uh, developed. Yeah, I, I, I think that we need to also look at Jesus' healings as putting people on the farthest out sides, putting, mm -hmm. putting, putting them one step closer to the inside. Mm -hmm. And so whether that is the ability to earn money, the ability to be in community, the ability to, to see or to walk or to anything, 
um, Trey, you've worded that to me a certain way too. Like you've said something about that, that it's, if you can remember what you told me a couple of weeks ago about the healing or the demon casting out of demons. I think I remember what you're talking about. Um, it's pretty rare for Jesus to forgive someone without also healing them. Um, and so I think that means something for what forgiveness is. I think it has mm -hmm. to do with our relationships to the people around us. That is mm -hmm. Jesus is healing people. Um, and, and bringing them into that next step of community. Um, it's repairing those social bonds. And so forgiveness has an element of repairing social bonds. Well, yeah, absolutely. We see like in Desmond Tutu's work in the book of forgiving and his daughter as well, Umpa Tutu, where your, both your, of them. Your voice is, is cutting out there, mm -hmm. Kevin. Scratchy, I'm sorry. So Umfa Tutu and Desmond Tutu wrote a book together called The Book of Forgiving. And that work was a lot, not necessarily this relationship with the transcendent forgiveness. It was a very tangible mm -hmm. relationship that when we forgive, we're actually, yes, kind of carrying out that idea that we will be forgiven by the transcendent when we forgive one another that when we forgive each other that's when we actually embody the forgiveness of let's say god um i want to go back to what you said jake though about monotheism because it's traditionally said that monotheism emerges or births out of uh the burning bush that at that moment i am is who i am when god declares to moses in that narrative story that that is the moment that in in the torah where we see monotheism but that's imposed on that scripture that's not necessarily that's our words it doesn't say i am who i am and this is the birth of the monotheistic god that it doesn't say that in scripture so i kind of unpack that for me because i i find that interesting that you said that God never claims to be the only God. And so when, when you read the text, um, especially the old Testament, that God is greater than all other gods. Um, it's at the burning bush. I, I am, or I will be what I will be, or I am what I am. Another, another text to point to is, is the Shema where it's the hero Israel, the Lord is one. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it's at that point where Moses is taking all the names for God and pointing them towards a single God, El. That El Shaddai, mm -hmm. Shekinah, all these other places, um, names, sorry, not places, all these other deities that have been worshiped in a foreign land, they're all God. Um, it's not until some time later that we see Yahweh, Yahweh come out. Um, mm -hmm. that's not the name for God for, uh, almost exile like 586. And so it's a very late term for God. Um, and so L would be the name of God. Elohim is another word name for God that 
that we see early on. Um, but God never claimed to be the only God. And so I think it's unfair to say that, that the Jewish people, especially in the day, were monotheists, that there was only one God. But they were, they were, and I, I was going to look up the term while we were talking, but they're, they're single worshipers. So they don't Monalterous. Go ahead. Monalterous. Monalterous. And so they, they only worship one God, but there's a lot, there's a lot there. Um, but they believed in demons. They believed in angels. They believed in, um, Solomon put up, uh, poles uh, and, and also statues of other yes. gods because they they believe that they were real deities it wasn't this fake this fake idea but the the natural world was very spiritual back then that we've we kind of have demysticized the natural world where their natural world was was very very spiritual the mm-hmm. the rivers the lakes the mountains they all had they all had being, they all had, they all had uh, spirit. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, I would say that the, the first commandment of the 10, the 10 commandments are that the first one is that notion, you will have no other gods before me. And so the idea of no other gods before uh, Elohim or Yahweh or whatever the name of God that you want to attribute at that time, that that idea, no other gods before me, was new. Because honestly, the burning bush, if you look at that scene, the the people of the day, whether it be the Egyptians or others, they would have um, in those cultures, whether you believe the story of Exodus is just a narrative story or not, the people of that day or the people of exile day, they would have they would have looked at the burning bush and they would have declared the actual bush is uh, the actual bush is the God versus the voice behind the bush is the voice of God. So they would actually see the bush as God. Um, probably Moses, if that story, you know, had some historical merit that, that Moses would have looked at the bush and probably thought that, uh, right away. And so when that narrative or that, that story of I am, or I will be who I will be, I am who I am, that idea comes out, then we have this birth that God is a transcendent being, versus a tangible pantheistic in the bush type of type of god so so i think that there's some there's some unpacking there that i i mean we could spend the rest of our time on that concept but moving forward uh what i'm hearing you to say is that that this spiritual world was very very uh, or excuse me, the 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 world of Jesus at this time was very spiritual, and there was a lot of spiritual ideas flowing around. So whether that be actual demon possession, we have no idea. Um, but what we do know is there was something uh, there was something different about the person 
that needed changed and whether that be a marginalized situation that they need to become unmarginalized. But I remember what Sharia said, that healing in the New Testament was mostly about removing barriers. And remember that Sharia now, okay. <laughs> removing yep. barriers of, of social integration. So when somebody was they had a barrier, a disease or an ailment or a mental incapacity of some kind that Jesus came along, removed that barrier. So they were able to enter into the structure uh, again in a very um, mm -hmm. meaningful way. Did I get all that in? Did it, was that correct? <laughs> Want to make sure. I think so. Okay, good. Well, let's go I to 40. Oh, I, think ahead, it's, I think it's correct in that if, if we, I think we need to look at the word demon as, as we, as we have a colloquialism of everyone has their own demons, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, it might be a little, it might've been a little more real back then to mm. them, especially, but right. it has the same sentiment. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I guess it would be the Greek form of, so, so in the Greek, that form of demon comes from a rendering of the devil, the adversary. So it's a rendering of the Satan. And, and this is how I believe Satan is real. Satan is real. And Satan is a real person because adversaries are real people. And this is where I really buy into where Sharia was headed to in our pre-work that Sharia said demon releasing of demons is the releasing of barriers and adversaries are barriers. So whether you believe in uh, Satan being a little devilish horned pitchfork dude in the middle earth or, or not, um, which I don't, but uh, let's say you do. The the word we can both you that believe that Satan is the Middle Earth pitchfork dude, and me that I don't. We both can agree that Satan exists in this form, in adversary. That everybody has an adversary, and an adversary most often than not. 99.999% of the time has a first and last name to them. So empire then becomes a real discussion when it comes to demon possession or Satan as a reality, because Satan is attributed to Pharaoh. Satan is attributed to Caesar. Satan is attributed to empire and the empire becomes mm -hmm. the adversary to the God followers. And so everyone can believe in Satan as at least the adversary. And that's where demon, it's a rendering from the Greek word from demon. All right, let's All right. move forward. Who wants to read? I'll, I'll just continue to read and then someone can pick up chapter two. A man with a, a skin disease approached Jesus, fell to his knees and begged, if you want, you can make me clean. <clears throat> In sense, Jesus reached out his hands, hand, touched him and said, I do want to be clean. 
Instantly, the skin disease left him and he was clean. Sternly, Jesus sent him away and saying, don't say anything to anyone. Instead, go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifice for your cleansing that Moses commanded. This will be a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and started talking freely, spreading the news so that Jesus wasn't able to enter a town openly. He remained outside in deserted places, but people came to him from everywhere. So any thoughts on that? Jesus is really trying to keep a low profile right now. Why do you think? Because I've heard that before, yeah. I think practically if um, if Jesus gets labeled the Messiah too soon, he doesn't have time to get work done because mm. the Messiah goes against Rome and that's a threat. Jake, do you have any thoughts on that? So Mark is the, is the gospel, the hidden Jesus. And mm. so the entire yeah. time Jesus is hiding, trying to keep people quiet, going out to deserted mm -hmm. places, staying away from towns, staying away from everything. So it's the hidden Messiah. And mm. in, I think it's just one more example of, of the hiddenness, but also the epiphany. I think we go through the season of epiphany in church where it's the, the revealing of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. Mark is a slow reveal. Um, and so I think pretty soon we'll see even demons communicate who Jesus is. I think we need to be really, we need to be really careful and see what they actually say, because that's what mm. Mark is actually speaking through them when he's writing. Um, mm I I find the verbs that of Jesus here uh, the verbs adjective I don't know sternly and incensed mm -hmm. <laughs> adjectives yeah yeah to be mm -hmm. interesting and very mm. harsh and I'm this is an interesting translation I'm I've, I've never read that before uh, it shows a very a very angry Jesus almost. Yeah. Well, it it actually you could be retranslated as uh, filled with compassion. So filled with passion, filled with repassion, filled with but that could be anger as well. Um so in compassion, you know, we have that double thought that why is this person in this situation and you know I'm mad that this person is in that situation. So there is a, there's a double emotion there, I would say. Yeah, definitely. So I, when I look at the idea of skin and I think about that being such a prominent visible uh, disease, but you think about anybody with a skin disease, and the human, just basic human, like reptilian reaction is fight or flight. When we see somebody with a skin disease, like boils on the skin, 
uh, for some reason, our brains are connected uh, in a way to skin disease as threat. I don't know where that comes from. Um, I really don't know how that emerged or evolved in our brains, the psychological brain. But it is, it is true that skin or that visible um, ailment definitely brings people, as it says, who has it to, to their knees, but also then creates a repulsion of the people around. They, they flee. So I, I, I think that there's something a little more there just bringing up skin disease, um, leprosy, let's say, that that means a little more psychological or sociological than just reading it as, oh, that's just a skin disease. What do you guys think of that thought that, that it means more? Yeah. I mean, it's like, if your initial reaction is to recoil away from someone who has a skin disease, that has some pretty profound social impacts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And would keep you from ever receiving any kind of rite or ritual from a leader in mm -hmm. the temple. So not only because somebody that with, with, let's say no legs that they believed that, or couldn't walk that person could be brought into when we're going to read into a crowd. Right. But somebody that has a skin disease wouldn't have even been brought into a crowd. So we right. just we just went through a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Think, think of how we felt about people who openly coughed in group settings. Oh, and so they were going to kill us all. We were all going to die because of because of how. Um, Anyways, the idea because of, of your cough, <laughs> yeah, because of your cough, but this endemic that they were having leprosy or whatever it was, um, mm -hmm. could be transferred. Mm -hmm. They were afraid of it and it was yeah. a visual sign of something real. We know a lot more about an internal medicine now than external where they only saw, see what they could, they could see. And so skin was a representation of the health of an individual. And so, mm -hmm. um, yeah, they were dealing with pandemic just like, just like we were, and we have a lot more tools to deal with it than they did. Um, it's, it's interesting that Jesus was actually, and this person actually came together and Jesus reached mm. out his hands and touched him. I think that's the bigger mm. point of this story. It's not that it's not that it's about leprosy. It's about not declaring people unclean. Mm -hmm. And throughout the entire gospel, it's going to be taking taking what was what was least, the most unclean of uncleaned, and making them worthy, clean, acceptable, whole. They still had a, a disease to deal with, and I think Jesus took care of that as well. But it was mm -hmm. it was more so that that you're going to actually make somebody make somebody clean inside. Um, think about 
we have what I was going to throw out there before before you get too far into that. Um, it's really interesting to me that when Jesus sent him away, um, he said, instead, go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifice for your cleansing that Moses commanded. So here we are outside of this religious temple-esque type be like situation. We're outside of that. And he's healed outside of that and then is asked to go to that. And that's really kind of a profound spiritual upside down type thinking, because what they would have thought is that person would have gone to a temple of some kind, washed in a basin to be clean, but the person with a skin disease wouldn't have been allowed to do that. Then they would have been in, been able to enter the temple for any kind of sacrifice. So this here is a reversal. And again, you know, going back to this narrative story of, of the Moses on the mountain where Moses receives the glory of said God. And then the structure of the law builds community amongst the people in relationship and community. That's why we have the Levitical law. So now we have the mountain, Moses is at the top. And then the least people on the mountain would be those at the bottom. And the people at the bottom would be like the paralytic person or the woman or the person with the skin disease or anybody that's socially marginalized. And then Jesus comes along and the least will be first and the first will be last. Last becomes first, first becomes last. So now the glory of God shines through the person with skin disease. So the glory of God is first shown in skin disease. Now go back to the temple and do your practices. And it just shows what Sharia was saying, removing those barriers of social integration, that the temple and the sacrifice idea of ancient world was more about social connection and social practice versus really maybe the theology of it was to receive the glory of God, but definitely the practicality of it was just a social implication. I didn't want to lose that in what you were saying, Jake, because uh, it was right there in the center of that passage. That's fair. Yeah. The, uh, and I would say that the reason for sacrifice was Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. I think we, we oftentimes read sacrifice just as repentance or, or a, mm -hmm. a guilt based offering. Um, but there's other form of sacrificed, not just bloodshed, not just all these things. It's it, it's hard telling what he was actually being called to. Right. Right. All right, let's move on. Mark 2, are we good to move on? Yes. Please. All right. After a few days, Jesus went back to Capernaum, and people heard that he was at home. So many gathered that there was no longer space. So many gathered that there was no longer space, not even near the door. Jesus was speaking the word to them. Some people arrived and four of them were bringing to him a man who was paralyzed. They couldn't carry him through the crowd, so they tore off 
part of the roof above where Jesus was. Now, of course, their roofs were made a little different, so that was possibly easier than not. When they had made that an opening, they lowered the mat on which the paralyzed man was lying. When Jesus saw their face, faith, he said to the paralytic, child, your sins are forgiven. Some legal experts were sitting there muttering amongst themselves. Why does he speak this way? He's insulting God. Only the one, only the one God, only the one God can forgive sins. Jesus immediately recognized that they were what they were discussing. And he said to them, why do you fill your minds with these questions? Which is easier to say to a paralyzed person, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your bed and walk. But so you will know that the human one, Jesus, has authority on the earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who is paralyzed, get up, take your mat and go home. Jesus raised him up the right way and right away he picked up his mat and walked out in front of everybody. They were amazed and praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Hmm. So what does this speak to you first? I mean, I, I have thoughts about it, but I want to hear from you first. That what is this speaking? Um, in verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic child, your sins are forgiven. Um, so already it's, it's the faith of the man's like friends or the people around him. But what mm -hmm. I see there especially right. is that, um, there's there's already inclusion in the community um mm. so some of those barriers were already broken down yeah do you think that that had to do with sustenance that they were giving this person uh potentially they were giving them provision there's a good chance yeah I mean, obviously he wasn't Maybe. going hungry. I mean, he wasn't right. starved out to death, so he was being supplied something at some point, right? Maybe they were family members. Hmm. To me, I, when I hear that, I hear communal faith and how mm -hmm. important communal faith is and how we've lost that in our culture. Yeah. We've lost communal faith to the point that that we are very individualistic we even have words like uh, a, a phrase i have a personal relationship yep. with god and that has become so individualistic that it's almost like an american culture ideologue where each person has to have a personal relationship with god and it goes back to uh, Jake's comments on monotheism, when we believe that, you know, in the first uh, tenant or proposition is monotheism, one God um, means then is translated into one nation and maybe even to say under this one God and then to say now we are one people and then eventually we'll say one person, that I'm the only one. And so one way, one person, one ideologue. And so this shows me that even the faith of the friends around me can, can save that can actually promote maybe more of a communal 
um, faith for me, like advocate for me somehow. So the, continuing on the communal uh, faith of it all, the idea of there was this grand action. There was expression mm -hmm. of faith. There was a, they were lowering this guy down, not knowing what was going to happen, but hoping for the best. Um, I think that showed a lot of faith. That was the faith part. I think the, the guy on the mat was receiving, but as his mm -hmm. friends or his, his comrades, whatever they were, <clears throat> definitely were the ones <clears throat> that had the faith that something was going to change. Right. Um, when the Pharisees are the, the teachers, the experts start talking, I forget what they're actually called them there. I can't see at the moment. And they ask, who is this to forgive sins? Right. Mm -hmm. I think at that, at that point, only God, only God can forgive only, sins. Yeah. Only the one God can forgive sins. Mm -hmm. Right. That was more an implication of the sin of the parents and the fathers, the forefathers was causing this person to be paralytic. And mm -hmm. so when you, when you look at that, it's, it's not the, the individual sinner of it's a, it is a societal idea of sin. Say that one more time. Explicate that a little bit more for me. Let me go back to the text so I can like accurately speak this. <clears throat> right. When, why, do you, why does he speak this way? He's insulting God. Only the one God can forgive sins. So that is more of the idea of child, your sins are forgiven. I don't think Jesus was calling this paralytic man a sinner. I think it's more of the, the he's confronting the idea of generational sin where, mm. where the sins of his parents and his, his grandparents or whoever they was is causing them, him to be paralyzed. Mm -hmm. It could have been him as well, depending on how, how recently he was paralyzed. Um, but again, we're looking at a healing of taking taking somebody that's on the outside that didn't have a means and in a very hostile environment of the first century where if you couldn't work, you couldn't eat. And mm -hmm. for some reason, this person kept kept their friends, and I'm not sure how. Usually, they would just be cast aside and, and the Pharisees right. would give them alms. Um. So potentially, like Shereya said, a related person, maybe even a family member of some kind. But that's just a guess. There's no... It's just a guess, but it... Right. It seems most likely to me. Yeah, I think we also see the desperation of change. Hmm. The system of, of sin was so oppressive um, and it's the same system that we have, to be honest with you, the idea of right. if you're not, if you're not wealthy, if you're not a healthy, healthy, if you're, if you're not, not able, and, all, yeah, these, so yeah. all of those ideas are that you have done something in your life to deserve to be less than, 
And so mm-hmm. that's called the great Protestant experiment that the, the country that follows God will have the greatest blessing. And we've carried mm-hmm. that with us for the United States for a very long time that, and I think that the people that believed in that so hard, and that's why kind of became true that we have the greatest wealth out of any nation possible because we believed that message to be true. I don't think it is true, but I just think that we thought it was and we behaved like it was. The <laughs> the idea of well they're less fortunate. I just think of how that how that sounds. And we believe that like meant as a as a community, as a group as a whole, we believe that even mental illness, even ableism are the abilities those are attached to a sin as well or a less um less blessing of some kind Mm -hmm. so when we look at a a person that's mentally ill we actually have an aversion to that right now especially uh, in the houseless populations we just think that people are you know we'll use the term crazy or or just you know belligerent or whatever we'll say um and it's easy to label somebody like this uh and we do that because we find them less fortune that they have less fortune less blessing than than we do um or somebody that is calling them that name does so it's so what he says there what is easier to say to a paralyzed person your sins are forgiven or to say get up take your bed and walk um so so he basically shows the more difficult he uses that rabbinical de- rabbinical device of questioning the question like he puts out the question mm-hmm. they put out a question and then he answers with a question but then he does the harder of the two because it's easy to say that your sins are forgiven but it's harder to provide and i think that that's where we're at thoughts and prayers you know we say thoughts and prayers this reminds me of that we say thoughts and prayers but then we don't take that to action we don't um take that to you know a full fruition um I'll have to look up the quote. I'll remember um, who said it by the end. But it's it's easy to pray for someone. Um, it's hypocritical and some of the greatest hypocrisy to not put action to that prayer, not provide in that prayer. So prayers become, I guess, fickle. Um, I believe in the power of prayer because I believe in the power of faith and works, where our faith and works go together and this reminds me of the faith of the group our friend pastor bruce who works with home pdx downtown that his faith or the faith of those that are helping in that it's like standing in the gap of those that are mentally ill and houseless standing in the gap of i'm here and i'm the presence of god for you and my presence is actually saving you so that's the idea that i think about um when I think about uh, this this group of friends, this communal faith, we called it. I think again, we we need to look at sin, not not individual. That okay. The idea is that what's easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. 
the the job mm. of of everyone that that believes is to take right. is to take that barrier those barriers away, and so just like mm-hmm. Jesus was taking barriers, and sin has become this barrier, and mm. it's usually group sin. It's not an individual sin that's a barrier. Right. And so the Pharisees. So there's a. The, Go ahead. I'm sorry. I almost interrupted. My apologies. Go for it. Oh, I was. I I, I remember the person who said that quote is Miroslav Volf, and he said there's something deeply hypocritical about praying for a problem you are unwilling to resolve. Hmm. So Miroslav Volf mm-hmm. said that. That there is something deeply hypocritical about praying for a problem you are unwilling to at least be a part of the resolve. A part of. Mm. I think that that rings very. That kind of has that today, today. doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. 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 Something I see with the legal experts and and their questions. Um, it seems to me like a way of, of trying to theologize who's in or who's out. Cause mm. if forgiving and healing go together, um, what does it matter whether Jesus forgives sins or whether Jesus heals? The point is restoration. Um, mm. And so really they're just kind of like using the Bible to exclude. And I think we still do that today. We use the Bible to exclude. Tell me some practical ways we do that. Um, I think we do that with the queer community. Okay. Um, we do that with women in leadership positions. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts on how we exclude? And even ethnic groups, non, non-neurotypical. I think every time we mm-hmm. see jesus healing it's it's the act of non-exclusion and so it's the opposite right. of mm. so when it comes to exclusion and do you think that the person now the person of course wanted uh they wanted their paralyzation their they were paralyzed. They wanted to walk again. I'm sure that that was a desire. Was there a greater desire that you see in this story? I mean, was it acceptance? Could we say that? Or is that just cheapening, I guess, the scripture and, and trying to look for something that's not there? Uh, I think to answer that better, I'd want to know more about their community situation. Um, because it does seem like they have people around them taking care of them. Um, but like, what yeah, was the extent of that? Were they considered a full member of society? Um, hmm. Okay. So we would have to know. We don't know. So that would right. just be guesses and we're not going to guess. We're, we might throw out some things that are guesses, but we're going to make sure that we... Um, say that they are so we would have to know more like number one anything in scripture like this there's a community around this person that's lifting them up on the roof and lowering them down so Mm -hmm. that is very profound that's not something to look 
gloss over and say, oh, I don't know, you know, that, that doesn't matter. That does matter. There's obviously something mm -hmm. there that this person has that maybe other people don't. Um, it seems pretty unique in the text. It, yeah, it does. It does. Okay, verse 13. Jesus went out beside the lake again. The whole crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he continued along, he saw Levi, Alphaeus' son, sitting at a kiosk for collecting taxes. It's like an ATM sitting there, but a collecting ATM, I guess. Jesus said to him, follow me. Levi got up and followed him. Jesus sat down to eat at Levi's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples. Indeed, many of them had become his followers. When some of the legal experts from among the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why is he eating with sinners and tax collectors? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. I didn't come to call the righteous people, but sinners. So that is the meal. We see a meal and there's something very theological and philosophically profound around eating. Um, we know that. We know that from current culture. Uh, we know that from old, even American culture, Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner. Um, uh, I guess Thanksgiving dinner for, for the uh, culture that we have. And so tell me some more about this. We have tax collectors. We have, quote, sinners. I guess you could say thieves and sinners are sitting with Jesus. Yeah, well, and as a tax collector, right? So Levi, Levi is likely a Jewish person. Levi is a Jewish mm -hmm. name. Um, and they're working for Rome. So there's an alignment with the empire. There's alignment with the oppressors, um, as well as the um, financial aspect of probably taking more money than people actually owed. Right. That has nothing to do with today. That's totally irrelevant. <laughs> so eating was, was reclined. And so it yes. was, it was completely vulnerable. Mm. And so what Jesus is doing in this situation is opening himself up to complete vulnerability with people. And mm. when you look at the question I always have is do you have a group of Pharisees, uh, religious teachers, I forget what they actually they're called in here. Where were they at the table? They, were. they weren't just, they weren't just walking by. So they were obviously either right. there, they were around. There was something, um, looking through the windows. <laughs> Yeah, that's creepy. The idea is like <laughs> it's more for narrative sake than for than for historical right perspective yeah. and accuracy. You, right mm -hmm. when you have the idea of like sinners and tax collectors, those were that were outside, and so a tax collector would be a sinner in the idea in the eyes of. Mm -hmm. But 
I think we again we need to take off the individual sin and look at sin being the capital S. That that those that are on the outside have been sinned against or have partaken in, in that movement of sin. And so Jesus didn't come for the people that were inside the circle. He came to the, to the tertiaries. Mm. And when we put Jesus at the center of the circle, I think we lose the entire image of the gospel. Mm. That it's, it's very easy to put Jesus there, but Jesus never was there. And right. by eating with people that you would not necessarily eat with, it's giving sustenance, it's being vulnerable, it's, it's humble. Um, in the culture of the day, there was a, there was a hierarchy around the table as well. And so they sat mm-hmm. in a giant U shape, and, and as you close, got closer to the pinnacle of the U, that's where the most important person would sit. And... I don't know where Jesus would be at this time. Well, I would, I would say that at this moment you could say amongst. So when you, when you think about Jesus, are are you, let me ask you a question. Are you saying that in this situation, Jesus is the center character or what are you, what are you trying trying to say? say uh, my idea is that, not that he's a center, but it's we don't know where Jesus is sitting at the table. Just in general. In general, we have no idea of placement. And so in other, t- in other times that you see meals, there's very specific about where Jesus at, is at, at the table. Oh, yes. yes We're here. Okay. And just, then he starts, yeah, right. So then who's the head of the table and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and so um, the... Yeah. <clears throat> but, but what he's doing is he's eating with the very worst at this point. Mm-hmm. There was no one lesser than a tax collector because they were working with Rome. They were stealing. They were taking. Right. You see this again in the story of Zacchaeus as well. Um, mm-hmm. But there was no one else worse than a tax collector. Well, and also I would say that that's a societal um, hierarchy of sin that's being notated. We have to remember that Mark is written in a very intentional way in ordering of things. I would say that Mark is, is, is can I say, um, flexible? <laughs> like, like it's a flexible narrative where... where it's not so specific when it comes to historical context. It's not so specific when it talks about who's included, who's not included, placement around the table, who's one, two, three. It's, it's not necessarily, uh, my understanding is not ultimately uh, meant to be, let's say, a ordering of details, but an ordering of material. So you have story mm-hmm. one, story two, story three. Right. Um, And those stories are to be read in more of a flexible, general understanding of the gospel. So so 
when it says sinner, when I read sinner, I read into that my current idea of sinner. Um, but yet when a ancient world person read the word sinner in this context, they would have looked at that general story and said, well, that's what the world thought of them. Not necessarily what Jesus thought of them because he's dining with people. And so he's amongst people that people outside of that group thought that they were sinners. Because ultimately Jesus comes along and says, well, what is the greatest command? And if the greatest command is to love God and love others as you love yourself, if that's the greatest command, then therefore the, the sin of human beings is the big sins are to not love God, not love others, and not love yourself. And so we see a reordering or redefinition here coming up of the idea of, of, of sin. So there's something the, in the Markan, the Markan theology here, there's something bigger. If I midrash this text and use that ancient rabbinical tool to say, what is the bigger understanding here? Um, it really doesn't matter where Jesus is placed at the table or the ordering of details. So in, in Romans, there's this the first chapter of Romans. Mm -hmm. There's the idea of the ordering of sin. Right. And uh, theologians, preachers, teachers throughout the days have tried to say which sin is worse. I think we even have the mm -hmm. seven deadly sins um, which didn't come about for a very long time. They were counterposed to the, to the seven holy virtues that we don't talk about. Right. We only talk about the seven of the sins, but not the virtues. Different story. Um, but Romans one talks about sins against com the community. And there's this mm. huge list of sins all the way down to, to even anti-homosexuality and other things that people prove text. But if you look right. at Romans 2, 1, it says, who are you to judge? You're doing the exact same things. Right. And so we oftentimes get stuck in the Romans 1 of the, of the passages of, of ordering sin and sinners mm -hmm. when what, what Paul or whoever wrote Romans is, is saying in Romans and what Jesus is saying here in Mark is that it doesn't mm -hmm. matter who's sitting, who isn't. It's just not judging, treating people as whole and moving forward with them. Right. Well, every generation Christianity is recreated. And so when you think about what 25 or so years ago Christianity looked like compared to Christianity today, it's recreated. So sin is redefined. Um, Participation in community, what the church looks like is redefined. So there's lots of things that are redefined. Usually is following um, generational advancement as well. And so as people advance, like in technology or in industry, we begin to recreate, I guess, we, we recreate or we're the creators of Christianity. I bring that up 
because we have created Jesus and the followers of Jesus, but also these ideas of sinner and sin, we have created those into our own image. So we have an image of sin. We also have an image of God. And if our image of God is the cosmic killjoy that's going to snipe me for losing my salvation like I lose my keys because I said the F word, um, I think our definition or image of sin has a certain frame. But if we believe that God is slow to anger, rich in love, then our view of sin might take a different frame. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to do here. Jesus is trying to reframe. And he's saying, I just healed a paralytic man. I actually picked him up off the ground and made him walk. And you're so worried about, you know, external trappings of your framework of sin. But I'm going to tell you that because you don't dine amongst them, you're a bigger sinner. I think that's the, that's the framework, the image difference. He's changing the image, I guess, recreating Christianity for, for people. So that's, this is the Christianity that we need to go back to. That this is the create Jesus is the creator of Christianity, not my generation. And so I need to go back to the source to figure out how to um, act. And so what this teaches me, the big narrative, is to dine amongst them, is to be amongst them. Should we go on? Yeah. All right. Are we 18? Oh, the wedding. Yes. Okay. John's disciples and the Pharisees had a habit of fasting. Some people asked Jesus, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but you don't? Jesus said the wedding guests can't fast while the, while the groom is with them. Can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they can't fast. But the days will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and they then they will fast. I no can finish one this, sews, Kevin. I can finish this. Yeah. No one sews a piece of new unshrunk cloth onto old clothes. Otherwise, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and makes a worse tear. No, no one pours new wine into old leather wineskins. Otherwise, mm. the wine would burst and the wineskins, where am I at? Uh, would burst the wineskins <laughs> and the wine would be lost. Thank you. We're gonna <laughs> and the wineskins destroyed. <laughs> but new wine is for the new wineskins. It took three people to read that verse. <laughs> Jay got lost in the text. My sound went bad, I'm guessing. And Sharia landed the plane. Thank you, Sharia. Yeah. Can I point <laughs> something out? Yes, please. Just the thing that's worth noting. Um, if if folks are following along, reading the text on the screen or reading along in a Bible, um, the headings aren't original to the text. 
Um, yes. And so even as we're going through the passages today, we're treating these sections like they're separate episodes. Um, but they aren't necessarily like the headings are put there to make things easier. But sometimes I think they can obscure when certain texts are meant to be read together. Um, and this yes. is one that I think might go really nicely with what was just before it, because we were just at a meal and now we're talking about fasting. And I think there's a natural flow there to the narrative that kind of gets interrupted by the heading. But also the next passage goes with it as well. And I think we should continue on, Jake, if you could read mm. the rest of 23, because now we're into Sabbath. So meals, eating together, which is a ritual and celebratory Jewish idea, right into fasting, which is a Jewish idea, right into Sabbath, which is a Jewish idea. So let's talk about those three all at once. Jesus 23. Oh, sorry. My, Jesus, my mic is muted. Jesus went, <laughs> Jesus went to the, the wheat fields <laughs> on the Sabbath. As the disciples made their way, they were picking the heads of wheat. The Pharisees said to Jesus, Look, why are they breaking the Sabbath law? He said to them, Haven't you ever read what David did when he was in need, when he and those were with him were hungry? During the time when Whoa, Abiathar was high priest, yeah. David went into God's house and ate the bread of the presence, which only the priests were allowed to eat. He also gave bread to those who were with him, and then to those who were with him. Then he said, the Sabbath was created for humans. Humans weren't created for Sabbath. This is why the human one is Lord even over the Sabbath. So, Shreya, why don't you start us out with kind of an overview of what you thought was connecting between the two, but then connect the third as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, the first part, we just went from a meal. So people are hanging out, they're eating. Um, and then maybe at dinner, some remarks, hey, wait a second, why aren't we fasting right now? Um, so that's just a really natural like question to ask over a meal. Um, but as we go on, so... Ooh, got to collect my thoughts. Okay. Um, I, I want to talk about Sabbath for a little bit. I can. Okay. okay. So in this idea of Sabbath, it was more of, is also a fasting time, fasting from work, fasting from, mm -hmm. fasting from uh, effort. Uh, the idea is, is that in order to be godly at the time, one had to keep the Sabbath and only a certain number of feet could be walked. Uh, there was no preparation of food on that day. It was all just a day to rest. And when you look at Sabbath as for yourself, and I think a lot of us have the idea that Sabbath is a very personal experience, that I'm going to take a Sabbath or it's my rest day. Mm. 
when you have the ability to say that, that is when you know that the Sabbath is not for you. So when you have the ability to say, I'm going to take the day off, then that also gives the opportunity for someone that is less fortunate than you to take the day off as well, because you're, you're not entering into the means of production. Hmm. Um, when you go, don't go and you engage in commerce, it's part of Sabbath is not buying anything, not selling anything. And so usually clerks at grocery stores or at restaurants or coffee shops or whatever, um, mm -hmm. they are in the service industry. They are serving you. You are the master. And mm -hmm. so when you walk in, know that you are, and you may be on your rest day or your, your time of Sabbath, but you are not allowing anyone else to have Sabbath. Sabbath was created for the sojourner, the person on the outside. It was created for mm -hmm. the people that didn't have enough. Um, and the story of... Of Ruth and Naomi. Um, the gleaners would come out on the Sabbath day when the men were resting from harvesting and the gleaners would take and they would distribute to those who needed, to the hungry. And so Sabbath is a time of healing as well. I think when we enter into this time of Second Temple Judaism, the Sabbath becomes more about a spiritual how should I say it? I have words, but I don't want to say them out loud. Um, a spiritual uh, ascent. Right. Actually like giving to another person. And so mm. if you read, if you read Heschel's book on the Sabbath, um, it lays this out pretty well that the Sabbath is not created for the religious, was not even created for the Christian or the Jew, but those on the outside. Hmm. Shrey, did you collect your thoughts and could speak into I this? I did. I did. And it's going to connect I saw really you nicely. writing, so I saw you noodling around there. So go for it. Um, so it's a question of fasting versus feasting. Um, and we were just talking mm. about how meals bring people together. They build community. Um, so Jesus and his disciples aren't here to fast. They're here to create community and to be in community with other people. Um and I think where that connects with what Jake was saying is that we we don't take Sabbath just so that we can take a day off. We take Sabbath in community um, to foster community, to provide others with rest as well. Um, mm. I think it comes back to community. So in light of time, I and my sound problem <laughs> i i want to end on something and we were supposed to get to chapter four uh by this time and it just it just is not going to happen so we might have to extend the life of christ for this is turning into weeks. a 16 week series huh <laughs> it could i'm not sure but i'm going to end with something that i'm going to be bold to say i'm going to end with the mistake in scripture and and I want to unpack this because I told you at the beginning of this podcast in my introduction, but I also, um, throughout my ministry, I have 
gone through an evolution. I've been in ministry for about 25 years. And in that time frame, I have made up things about scripture um, to try to um, adhere to my confession that I signed off on. Uh, I have done things um, to in, in, in with scripture that definitely I could say now is manipulative and wrong. I've put people in positions and othered used as Sharia said, using scripture um, as a, as maybe a weapon. Um, I've done that in my ministry. And I've also not told the truth about what the Bible is and, and what the Bible is about. And so for all of my mistakes in 25 years, I've been in a moment uh, in the last several, I would say uh, specifically, of a continual repentance. And when I think about repentance, I think about, okay, identifying how I was wrong, uh, learning new material, and now apologizing for that and living in what I believe is right. And it's living out the right now that I am attempting at, in my hardest to be very honest. And I think being honest is more important than being afraid that I'm going to say something that will compromise or rock your belief um, in the Bible or in Jesus or in the church or in leadership or whatever your belief is is put in. I I believe about scripture, and this is going to tie back to Mark, I promise. I believe in scripture that scripture is good for teaching, scripture is good for preaching and correction and all the things that the Bible teaches that scripture is good for. I believe that it is good for that. I also believe that scripture is inspired. It is inspired. I do not believe that scripture is infallible. And that's the difference between me and others. I think the infallibility of scripture cannot be proven, is not proven, and is very irresponsible to promote. And I'm gonna share with you why. Inspiration is very specific in definition and is very meaningful when you unpack it. Inspiration means that the Bible is fully written by human beings and given by God. And so it's fully, if I could say, it's fully human in expression and fully God in deliverance. And when I, when I think about how that plays out in scripture and when I'm inspired to do something and that inspiration could be by God, uh, that definitely plays out in how things are expressed. I might make a mistake. I might say something that's not true. I might say something that is completely off. And so I'm going to end Mark's discussion, the life of Christ with the mistake. And I'm going to allow our listeners to think about this mistake for, um, for the week. So the verse is Mark 2.26. Jake, if you could put that verse back up there. I don't know if some of you, do both of you remember the Earman commentary? The Earman. If I saw it, I might. Do you, what? Ehrman. Ehrman. 
Ehrman, Ehrman commentary. Yes. It's with an H. So the e Ehrman commentary, E-H-R-M-A-N. Um, basically, that person believed wholeheartedly in the infallibility of Scripture and now has abandoned that theology completely based on Mark 26. So during that time when Abiathar was high priest, Abiathar, however you want to pronounce that, David went into God's house and ate the bread of the presence, which only the priests were allowed to eat. He also gave bread to those who were with him. If you take an honest look at that scripture and you think about, okay, go back to 1 Samuel 21 or 1 Samuel 20 uh, and 21, you will find something uh, very important there. In 1 Samuel 21, you will see that the priest that's interacting with David is not Abiathar. You can you don't have to you don't have to look at that people can look it up later jake it's basically scripture one uh, verse one through nine of first samuel 21 and you'll see that that's not abiathar um it's actually uh ahimelech a, a and ahimelech was the actual priest and the father of abiathar now you can noodle around that and say, well, you know, that's actually a way of saying Ahimelech or that's a way of saying the household of, we're not going to even go there. I think that, that it just shows me that, that scripture is fully human and fully God, that the idea and the presence of God is there and the heart of the passage is there. But that's to show that the the ancient Greek texts that you can find and and most every other probably language that you have uh, found scripture to be translated or um, some are even some close to as far back as original documents that you can find will say Abiathar. And so so that just shows me, and we'll just leave it there, that the texts of the New Testament are trustworthy, the texts of the New Testament are inspired, and the message that we can propagate is that they are good for teaching and correction and preaching these wholesale truths that Mark is giving narrative after narrative after narrative of teaching us big picture. Like, like instead of what uh, Ehrman used to say, the mosquito Jesus, looking at Jesus, you know, at, at, at the fine gnats level of microscope that... This is more of a drone view, if I can think of this as more of a drone view. So, so your response to that could be that of, you know, just making stuff up around that scripture to make it more accurate. Or you could say, well, the Bible is not infallible, um, but the message is timeless and the message is inspired. And so what Shrey is saying is very important to get grasp. And what Jake is saying is very important to grasp, but also very important to be honest. The message is not about the detailed historical account of Mark. That's not the message. The message is about the meal, the fasting and the Sabbath and how Jesus in the face of empire 
pushed that message forward and said, this is what we're doing. And this is how we're acting in these three realms, in the meal, in the fast and the Sabbath. And we're taking these concepts and we're flipping them on their head to include the greatest of greatest sinner, to include those that need healed on the Sabbath, to include those that can't fast or shouldn't fast. We're going to include all of those people and not make this about rites and rituals of religion, but we're going to make this about spiritual glory and also redemption, forgiveness, and inclusion and acceptance. And so those are the messages to get out of this. And also I leave you with that because I told you I would be honest. And when even Jake was stumbling over that name, I'm like, oh, there's Mark 2.26 right there. So many people have lost and rejected their faith in Christ because they put so much weight into this redeveloped, recreated Christianity of infallibility and without error, basically. Yet the error brings the mystery. The error to me brings the beauty. The error to me brings the, um, the, uh, the life, I guess, that scripture is because it is alive and any life definitely has some air to it. And so we need to approach scripture that way, to think new about scripture that way, and to embody those things and to really um, capture the message instead of this, I guess, historical detailed view of scripture. You can apply that to creation story. You can apply that to the Noah story. You can apply that to Exodus story. And you can apply that to the historical Jesus story. And that's what we're doing with this each and every Thursday night. So with that, thank you, Sherea, for your thoughts. Thank you, Jake, for your thoughts. Well thought through. Hopefully we'll get to Mark 3 and 4 next week. But with that, that's all we have to present. I'd like to thank um, each uh, listener that, uh, tonight. Thank you for um, participating with us and all through the week. If you have questions about anything that we said or did, um, just ask away and we will definitely respond through the week. Go to resonatelife.org. You can give to us financially if you choose or interact with our other podcasts or presentations that are listed there um, online as well. So good night, everybody. Thanks for joining us.